Hi, Mary. So second week of December, and I'll tell you what, I'd usually expect to have seen at least a couple of turkey lunches by this point and normally a glass of wine or two as well. And I've had none of that so far. Have you managed any of that? Same as you, Dan, really. Yeah. Missing out, it feels, this festive season. I guess the other thing, though, is lockdown's over. So I've finally been able to visit my new local pub near my new house, which is great. Obviously feels quite different to sit outside if you're meeting people from a different household and that sort of stuff. But yeah, slowly but surely, I guess we're getting back to human contact, which is great. Quite decent pubs in that part of the world, aren't there? I thought Winchester was renowned for having pretty nice pubs. Yeah, I can't say I've sampled them all, but I'm up for the challenge. We'll see where we get to next year. But so far, so good. Nice kind of proper local pubs. Not all those fancy wine bars in the West End. Some pubs in London sort of feel more that they're there for show rather than people visit them every day type thing. And I guess there's pros and cons of both on there. But I suppose we're still in the position where we're going to have Zoom Christmas parties, though. I don't know if you've got your team Christmas do planned in. Yes, I think it's just been booked in. I think that's going in the diary. So um, yeah, we'll look forward to that. Make the most of it. I mean, it's probably for the best anyway, isn't it? Because all I've got is baby-related chit-chat these days anyway. So I don't think <laughs> I'll be much fun down the pub. So maybe I'll look on the bright side of that. This <laughs> I think we're all out of practice, Dan. But <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So uh, today's episode is the first in a little mini series we're calling Uncorrelated Reflections, where we're talking to some of our LCP colleagues and advisors uh, and looking back on some of the things that they thought were the really key highlights of the year. Today, we're delighted to be joined by LCP consultant Jacob Shah. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. Welcome, Jacob. Really excited for this conversation. Before we kick off, could you give the listeners a, a quick overview of your role at LCP and what you get involved in? Of course. So I'm a consultant in LCP's investment team. My clients range in size from about 30 million to a billion pounds, with my work covering a whole spectrum of investment issues, including investment strategy, manager selection, and performance measurement. In addition, I'm a key member of LCP's asset class assumptions group. So that's where we're coming up with long-term assumptions for the risk and return of various different asset classes. And I also sit on LCP's Central Investment Strategy Group, which works on developing cutting-edge investment strategies across our entire client base. Cool. And then, Jacob, before we get into all of that, looking back on the year, surprise question then, what's one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> well, you say a surprise. I was actually expecting this question because I do listen to the podcast. <laughs> ah, I see. Well, yeah. we, we found one. We've got a listener. <laughs> I have come prepared. A real live listener. <laughs> So you won't find this on my LinkedIn profile. You will actually find this on my university application. My fun fact is I can ride the unicycle. So when I was younger, I went through a bit of a clown phase and I used to have a seven foot unicycle that I used to ride down the beach. Wow. Seven foot. Yeah, I also make yeah. a reference to a clown phase. <laughs> yeah, there's it's a bit not of like I experienced well. myself. <laughs> as, if, as if that's a thing. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know. Is that a thing? I must have missed that phase. <laughs> Amazing. Do you still practice now? 
I can still ride it, but I haven't ridden for a long time. Left that part of my life behind. And that's why I called it phase. <laughs> I think it'd be a good talking point in the remote working world, to be honest. If you were remoting into a meeting, balancing on your unicycle, that would definitely be a change from the norm. <laughs> that would be incredible, a definite change. <laughs> Anyway, so looking back then, of course, on a really topsy-turvy year, and Jacob, I guess, reflecting, I suppose, this is the sort of first big financial markets crisis that you've been involved in in your career. Is that right? Yeah, and that's right. So I've been in, in the industry for five years now. So this is the first crisis that I've experienced. So Jacob, thinking of crises, and I guess you would have read about previous crises in books and seen on films, that sort of thing. Can you paint us a picture on what you would have expected a crisis to kind of look and feel and and act like before we were in it this year? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is something that I actually thought about back in March when we were kind of in the midst of the turmoil. So like you said, I've watched films, films like The Big Short, where it's all very dramatised. And kind of going into it, I kind of felt like it didn't feel like what I thought it would. There wasn't mass unemployment because of the furlough scheme. We didn't see waves of defaults because of government support to businesses. I mean, the whole feeling probably wasn't helped by the fact I've spent seven months working from home in my pajamas, nor probably from the fact that obviously I'm still in my job. So it definitely felt very different. And obviously it felt very quick from where we went from probably in March markets dropped, they then recovered very, very quickly. And it almost felt like it was over before it started. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's fair in terms of the um, certainly the equity market and a lot of the financial markets bit. I guess that is a key difference, isn't it, this time round? I wrote a piece back at the start comparing some average lengths of bear markets and stuff. And you can't really find many comparators when the market has fallen so far and then sort of rebounded. And I guess, Jacob, how would you reflect then on that playing out in sort of what clients have actually done and the conversations you've had with clients what has that meant it's an interesting point because kind of going into this i perhaps had a bit of a naive mindset where i see markets tumble perhaps 30 percent and i think great i can now buy some shares in a company that's 30 percent cheaper than they were perhaps a month ago looks like there's some really great opportunities there but actually when i look back on the kind of actions my clients take there wasn't as much investment action taken as I expected. There weren't any kind of big short-esque flash sale of assets. Now, don't get me wrong, there was lots of action in terms of meetings with clients and calls to discuss the impact of COVID on their assets, but there weren't actually too many investment transactions made in the first half of the year. That is really interesting, and it certainly sort of mirrors my experience in terms of loads of conversations and lots of sort of very careful monitoring. Across the clients that I work with, the most common action was rebalancing, which in some sort of mindsets, it doesn't quite feel like an action. Of course, it is an action and you are doing something and it does position you, as you said, Jacob, if equities are 30% cheaper than they should be or than they have been, then you are buying equities at the bottom. But it doesn't feel like such a dramatized piece of action as rethinking your entire investment strategy. And I guess just to dig into that then, so I guess if you're saying that clients maybe were taking less action than what you might have expected, I suppose there could be a few reasons for that, couldn't there? I mean, it could just simply be because of the speed of the whole thing, and it just happens so fast that they couldn't take any action. It could, of course, be because of the, all those classic behavioral factors came into play. People were anchored. They were sort of fearful, too, too conservative, et cetera. Or it could be they actually didn't need to. It didn't affect them as much as we might think, right? So I don't know what you think in terms of those explanations. I can see all of them being relevant in different cases, potentially. Yeah, completely agreed. And I mean, 
in the defense of a lot of our clients, they are pretty well-funded DB pension schemes with low-risk investment strategies. So for them, they actually experienced a very limited impact on their positions. And they'd already done a lot of hard work over the past few years to build more resilient portfolios. So they didn't need to do much action. They didn't need to do much rebalancing. The behavioral finance one is a really interesting point, actually, because obviously when you're in this scenario where markets are tumbling, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of unknowns, and it's easy to be kind of hesitant or cautious in that scenario. But this is a kind of behavioral finance 101 where there's some actions there that stops us making the right investment decisions. So for example, the fact that we're more sensitive to losses than gains, and we're usually quite overly influenced by short-term considerations. And also what we call the emission bias, which you might also know as the trolley problem, which is essentially that we judge action much more harshly than we judge the inaction of doing nothing. Yeah, that really comes into play in these sort of situations, doesn't it? One thing we probably all learned as you go through a crisis is it is much harder than you would think to make those decisions when the market is down a lot. It just is. And I think that is really important knowledge that you just don't get from reading a textbook in, the, in these crises. You can always look back at past crises and say, well, yeah, of course, it was a great chance to buy. But there's never any moment in real time where you can be confident in that. There just isn't. And that's really interesting, I think, in the context of I'm trying to remember back down to the episodes we were recording around the sort of depth of the crisis and the month or two afterwards. I certainly remember saying something about markets overreacting right at the very start. And I did feel that. I did think markets had overreacted. And then, of course, the cases across the world got much worse. And it felt like that was maybe a an incorrect statement that I'd made. But then as we started talking about different shapes of recovery, I think across the summer, there was just always this feeling, well, winter's coming and we don't know what that's going to feel like. So it was difficult to reflect back on a crisis, not knowing if we were still in the midst of it. And I suppose it, we still don't know is the other thing to say here. We still could see significant further volatility. I definitely thought that back in the summer where we had markets rebounded quite strongly. And I remember actually talking to my colleagues and thinking, hold on, winter's still going to come. Surely there'll be a second wave. Why are we in the position that we're in today? And that's something actually with rebalancing, I think, can be quite nice. Making good market timing calls is difficult for any investor. If equity markets are down, we don't know if they're going to go up or down the next day. But we do have pretty good confidence that equities will deliver good returns over the long term. With rebalancing, you can have a mechanism where as markets are falling, you end up buying equities and the exact opposite happens as markets come back. And you never have to figure out where the bottom or the top is. And so by following that disciplined approach to rebalancing can help you avoid behavioral biases in your investment decision making. Yeah. And I mean, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Trying to avoid those sort of behavioral kind of gremlins. But I guess in some ways, I mean, let's be honest, inaction was your friend in, through this crisis, right? I mean, doing nothing has actually worked out reasonably well. I mean, yes, it wouldn't have been lovely to have a big allocation of cash that you could have allocated to US equities or something in the middle, but that was tough and that doesn't tend to be the case. In some ways, you can overthink markets, I guess, is my point, isn't it? And that's what you were saying, Mary. You could think at the very start, oh, it's overreacting, and then things suddenly really unwound. And then the market rallied back so fast, and you could think, well, is it overreacting that way? And I guess my point would be, actually, sometimes it's just easier to not go down that road of trying to read too much into it and just kind of say, hey, look, it's going to be plus or minus. Sometimes it's going to be up more than you think it should. Sometimes it'll be down more than you think it should. It's just got to live with that. 
back to your point, Dan, about whether clients just didn't need to take action or investors didn't need to take action. If we're thinking about triggers to capture good market opportunities, I do really strongly believe that triggers need to be aligned with whatever you're trying to aim to get to. So for a DB pension scheme, that's trying to get fully funded. And actually, if you're very close to being there, you don't want to introduce equity risk. We don't know whether we're at the top, the bottom or the middle of the market. And actually, you just don't want that exposure full stop. But having triggers, when we look at different individual asset classes, there were times where they were, I think the buzzword was dislocated. Assets were acting in very different ways at different points in time in this year. And actually, to an extent, we have a balanced investment strategy because we want to be defensive when we need to be defensive and we want to seek opportunities, etc. But at the very end of the day, do we care which asset is driving good returns if we're getting good returns? If we're aligning action to that sort of longer term objective, then I sort of don't care which part of my portfolio is doing what if I'm making good progress. Yeah, I think that's a really key point because so often you want what's happening to align with your story and the way you're seeing the world as well. It just doesn't always. And sometimes I think that's fine. You're getting returns. It's not overthink. We don't need it to come from certain places. I think that's a really good point as well. It's always tempting to trade more. And we could spend all day thinking about markets and inevitably find some attractive short-term ideas along the way. Trading carries more cost. Sometimes it doesn't deliver the results you're looking for. And actually, the greatest tool for a lot of our clients is actually simply their time horizon. Having a long-term time horizon is one of the best tools for growing their assets. Yeah. And while staying focused on that in the middle of all the noise is a challenge. One thing I was going to go back to actually on on actions. I mean, I guess in previous crises, one cause of people taking a lot of action was things like hedges doing funny things and creating cash calls. So one thing I remember happening in the past was currency hedges, for example, creating big cash calls back in crises when sterling had fallen in value a lot. And that was fine. Obviously, it was a hedge. So your your holdings were, in theory, compensating for it. But in practice, we're also down a lot as well because equities were down. They were just down less. And I do remember that sort of thing created issues in the past. And also, obviously, because of the whole nature of the banking crisis before, there was a lot of which bank are our swaps with? What's the situation with that? So I suppose the fact that it wasn't a banking-related crisis, and I think a lot of those hedging sort of programs are better set up now and are more calibrated to what happened before, that just didn't seem to be an issue at all. I, I certainly didn't see any hedging programs that were suddenly calling out for extra collateral or cash needing needing posting. Yeah, it does feel like on the sort of logistical side, this crisis hasn't hit as hard as some previous crises. But then Dan, as you said, it's sometimes just about the source of the crisis, isn't it? And this one was so different to the ones that we've seen before in terms of the driving factors. What other takeaways stand out to you then from the year we've had? Yeah, so there's a couple of key takeaways that do come to mind. One of them is actually the ability to be dynamic and flexible can be quite valuable. You mentioned earlier that this crisis was very short-lived. Markets fell in March, they then rebounded pretty quickly in April. And that highlights to me that if you want to be able to capitalize on opportunities, which are largely speaking, they're opportunities that you can't predict, the ability to be dynamic and flexible is valuable. And what that ultimately means is that you need to be set up in the right way so that when you go into a crisis, you've got the right governance structures or the right policies in place that allow you to act. And Mary, you actually mentioned something that's very topical on this in terms of triggers. So it's thinking about for our clients, whether for to meet their long-term objective, what triggers we can put in place, have a policy around that to the extent that it's possible, try to make actions automated so that when these opportunities do come up, you can react quickly and capitalize on those opportunities as they arise. 
Yeah, actually, and that's a really good point because one characteristic of this crisis that did pose a few problems was actually on the operational side of things in terms of instruction letters, getting signatories with institutional clients where the sort of operational process is fairly involved in terms of the instructing people to move money around or make trades and that sort of thing. It's not a, obviously, it's not a click of a button thing. And those processes did change quite a lot. So simply making sure those things were working well or having a setup that has thought that through in advance, I guess, was quite important. Otherwise, in some cases, there was one case where we were trying to fax an instruction to a counterparty in Luxembourg sort of thing to disinvest from a fund. And there were bank holidays over there and you know all those sort of things, that just stuff that you need to work through to get yourself ready for those situations. I guess that's what you're saying, isn't it, Jacob? Yeah, that's definitely right. As you said, in the institutional space, that five-week time horizon when markets moved quite a lot is actually quite a quick period and it's difficult to react in that kind of time frame when you're having to arrange instructions and submit them. Just as a little side note, isn't it amazing how this has brought the end to some of those very archaic practices that certain investment managers just insisted on for years and years? When I started my career, fax machines were very much not the common way of communicating and yet there were still managers till March, April time, weren't they, that were insisting? And that's one positive. Yeah, they hadn't been for decades. It was like, it is a positive, actually. Yeah, I mean, it was bizarre. It's how some of the industry was operating more than it should have been until quite recently. And that has changed. And a related point, actually, I've often thought is that when you're talking about institutional decision making and investing rather than individual, it's quite interesting because I think behavioral biases can affect both, but in quite different ways. So for individual, you always worry about someone sort of freaking out, logging into their account and selling all their equities on a certain day which can happen. Now, on the institutional side, there are enough sort of safeguards around it that that would be really unlikely to happen because you'd have to all meet as a trustee board. You'd have to all agree that that was the right thing to do. I think it's fairly unlikely that that would would happen. But on the flip side, obviously it makes you slower, but you might say it makes you more deliberate in your decision-making so that you can't just sort of freak out and make a rash decision. But it probably also makes you a bit less flexible as well, doesn't it? So the swings and roundabouts, so those institutional sort of safeguards that we put in, like you say, you can set yourself up to be more flexible if you think about it. So potentially the risk on individuals is action and the risk on institutions is inaction. The bigger risk is that they get round to doing nothing because the meetings take time to organise. And by the time they're discussing it, the moment's passed, potentially. That's a really nice way to put it, I think. It also kind of brings the point around institutional investors just being aware of how markets are moving because of individual investors. That's a really key point in some particular markets. So for example, the US high yield market, that's a very retail focused market where high yield and loans are used as a mainstream asset class for individuals, kind of 401ks. Actually in Q1 2020, we saw kind of historic sell-off in the US market when we had individual investors just fleeing to safety around uncertainty because of COVID-19. Ultimately, they were seeking to sell their assets at any price. And that kind of tendency for retail investors to run to the hills leads to funds just to force sell, potentially force selling investments that are being sold for non-fundamental reasons, but they're still good investments. And so certainly when I was having conversations with clients, certainly in Q1 2020, part of that was trying to almost give them reassurance around what's driving that market performance and understanding why we're getting these such big movements. That is definitely true. I think it's less true than it used to be. Individual investment marketplace now is now so much more intermediated by advisors who really do focus on coaching people to keep those good behaviors. It's probably less prone to that than it used to be. But one big feature of this crisis, actually, what I thought you were going to say was the impact of stuff like Robin Hood 
all the data and the anecdotes and stuff that were coming through on that, because that has been a really new thing this time around. There was such an active ability for so many people to trade shares so quickly in, in such a frictionless way over that period of time that you know seeing a lot of headlines and, and really conflicting ones in some cases you know, they were things they were doing were good other thing other times people were sort of criticizing the, them quite heavily so not taking a view on it i just think that was part of the story this time around that this sort of hasn't been so much in the past yeah and i guess another way of interpreting the word flexible in terms of investment strategies and how we work with our clients is bit of flexibility to hold assets that are out of favor or to buy assets that are out of favor so you mentioned in the high yield market, if individuals are selling their investments and then the price is falling and then there are funds that have to sell it because of the downgrade that's happened and actually having the flexibility to keep hold of some of those assets or to buy them when they're cheap could lead to good returns. That's a really, really good point. Part of being an institutional investor and certainly us as a consultant, we can work with investment managers to help develop good funds that we think aren't going to be subject to perhaps some of these dynamics that you see in markets. So a good example is actually buying corporate bonds. If you were to invest in a passive basis, so you invest in a tracker fund, if you see bonds get downgraded and they fall out of the index, you have to sell that bond because it's fallen out of the index and you're going to be selling that bond after it's already fallen in value. Whereas instead, you could follow a different investment approach where you'd still be buying high quality bonds, but you're not going to be a forced seller of them. Certainly, you don't want to sell a bond if you still think it's a good bond to hold over the long term. It's a good point, actually. You just mentioning bonds just reminded me of something else. I suppose we should recognise the role that a lot of the central bank support has played in this particular crisis. As you were talking about bonds, I was just thinking of the question of liquidity. I guess in this particular year, there was a really quite short space of time where it seemed like there was a real liquidity crunch. And that's where you got the really big swings in markets during the day. But that really stopped quite soon, whereas... If I was to contrast that with previous sort of crises I've experienced, you'd expect multiple kind of rounds of that kind of liquidity-driven, massive kind of stomach-lurching kind of sell-offs. And really, that settled down so quickly this time. Going back to the bond markets, obviously, there was record issuance, wasn't there, of course, in, I think it was March, but even April, May, June, there was actually lots of the better bonds coming to the markets. And I suppose that was really all down to the central bank kind of support being such a big feature of that. Now, I have an interesting experience of that in that for one of my clients, we were actually transacting some bonds in March. And it was a transfer that we planned way in advance. It's something that was actually already in progress when markets really started to get hit and we had liquidity dry up. And I was on the phone with investment managers and I was talking to them about how spreads are moving. They were actually telling me anecdotally that they think if we push back the transfer a week, things will be better because they're anticipating action from the central bank that's going to help liquidity. Was really interesting this time in that we did have such a weight of support given by central banks that liquidity crisis was only very short lived. I guess the, the so what is, well, should we expect that in the future now? Has the roadmap of crises changed permanently because central banks now have that playbook of what they can do? There's some people who hate the idea of central bank support. Obviously, I'm not one of them. I try and accept things as they are broadly. Is that now the way things are going to be? Or would might people argue, well, they've already used a lot of that stuff. So there's limits what they can do. I mean, impossible to know, isn't it? But another way that things have been different. It is tricky because I think when we were chatting earlier in the year, Dan, and we were talking about central bank intervention and did they have enough dry powder effectively to give the level of support that might be required? And they've continually maintained or increased the support throughout this year, at least. It is a good question. I suppose it's similar to the question about can yields go any lower that we've been asking for almost 10 years. 
But it is interesting, does it set a precedent or does it use up all of the capacity to take that kind of action? I imagine we'll end up somewhere in the middle. I guess it is a bit of a confidence game, isn't it? I suppose as long as as you can keep thinking that the bank can give the market enough confidence, you can think that it might carry on going. But I guess banks are able to give confidence right up until the point when it isn't. It's one of those cliffhangers kind of thing. Who knows if you ever get there? Maybe you never, ever get there. Or maybe we do next time when suddenly the market doesn't buy that the central bank can do it. Kind of makes it tricky, doesn't it? But another reason not to overthink things, maybe. It feels a bit like a bit of a dangerous cycle where each time it happens, the bank can go a little bit further to the point it can't. And then there's a sudden knee-jerk reaction to that by market participants. So Jacob, the other element to your role that you mentioned earlier is your participation in the asset class assumptions group. So you're helping to set central effectively asset class expectations for across LCP. How have those conversations changed this year, given what's driven markets? And I guess, what have you learned? What are you reflecting on in terms of what is driving markets? Really interesting conversations that we've had this year. As you probably expect, we, as part of that group, we've had extra meetings in kind of March and April to have these discussions. Coming up with asset class assumptions is a very difficult job. You can take in a lot of market data, but with asset class assumptions, we're trying to be forward looking. So we're not trying to focus on what's happened historically. And also we're kind of looking for the long term. So we don't want to be overly swayed by what's happening in the short term. Not to say that we completely ignore it, We obviously want to look at current market levels, might tell us about the return we could get on assets, but we then need to kind of combine that with a long-term view on the asset class prospects and thinking about how perhaps those market dynamics will change over time. To give you an example, going back to bonds, we saw the spread on bonds increase quite substantially in March. And what that means is that, broadly speaking, because the spread's higher, you might expect to get a higher return on that bond. But because that you are in an economic crisis, on the other hand, you might get more defaults coming through. We also have to think about how quickly spreads might revert back to normal levels. So we had meetings to think about all these different factors, how we need to change some of our modeling to allow for some of these changing dynamics at that current time. Talking about sort of revert back to normal levels and stuff, right? And I guess if only we could tell exactly what they were, but you've often got to take a view on those things over the long term, haven't you? It's just parcel of coming up with long-term returns that kind of drive our whole process. That's really true. So we have to come up with some views or figures for what we think the long term looks like. Generally speaking, you can look back at history as a relatively good guide. For example, on the corporate bond side, we look at about 100 years worth of data. And we also just look at particular time periods as well to see how sensitive our assumptions if we change some of those inputs. And we'll use that as a basis for setting assumptions. Obviously, that will come out with a number, but we don't just stop there. We also try to overlay that with lots of discussion, debate, independent oversight to actually think about what the right number is for setting our assumptions. I guess just to really emphasize what we're setting there is sort of mid to longer term assumptions. We're not trying to predict the market over the next three months. I guess certainly we're also trying to help our clients to see through some of that short term volatility, if not even take advantage of it. Yeah, that's exactly true. So for a lot of our clients, they have what we call long-term investment horizons. There we're talking about perhaps around 15 years. So for us, we're trying to set assumptions that reflect that time period. We're not focused trying to predict what's going to happen over the next three months. We're not in the business of making those short-term calls. We are firmly focused on that longer-term position. Obviously, when we give advice, we are then thinking about current market conditions and we'll overlay those long-term assumptions with kind of medium-term views on asset classes. And that's how we come up with strategies. 
But in terms of our kind of modeling and in terms of those assumptions we use, that's the kind of 15 year horizon we're looking at. It's difficult, isn't it? When that long term meets the short term, because we all love drawing these long term projections. So, you know, 4%, 5% returns per annum over the long term. And then we draw these nice straight lines going out. And if only returns materialized on that sort of timetable, and yet the short term is this year anyway, markets were down 30% one month, and then they were up 50% a couple of months later, and then they were flat on the year, and then they were up on the year. That path of the long term is just such a tricky one, isn't it? There's just no easy way of making those two things meet, I guess, is there? Yeah, that really is true. And I mean, we can come up with assumptions, we can have such high confidence in our assumptions, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they are just our best estimate guesses in a sense. It's very unlikely that the world will end up looking that smooth over the next 15 years. There's going to be volatility, there's going to be uncertainty over that time period. And that's where we try to bring in kind of other tools and obviously other consulting aspects to help our clients with that journey that they go on over the next 15 years. It's a bit like the point that Charles Plowden made a couple of podcasts ago when he was saying that you don't necessarily get rewarded for good news consistently. You might go for years and be a bit under-rewarded, then you suddenly get a load of catch-up, then maybe it gets a bit ahead of itself, all those sort of things. So I guess it's just about accepting you aren't going to earn those returns steadily over time and not getting too het up about exactly where you are on a, on, on a journey. That kind of links quite nicely back to triggers again, at the risk of repeating myself too much. Like you said, the path is not going to be smooth. You get some waves of good news, wave of bad news, and that's where triggers can actually help you when you get that good news, lock in those gains. You can move to a more resilient portfolio and give you a smoother path going forwards. That actually reminds me of one of my other observations of the kind of financial crisis, and that is that markets are very short-termist and sentiment-driven. Now, I already knew this, but the extent to which this happened in 2020 has quite cemented this view in my mind. So, for example, before the Pfizer vaccine news in November, many economists and political broadcasters predicted a vaccine would be available by mid-2021. And on the day the news broke, Rolls-Royce share price jumped up by about 40%. However, doesn't this news only represent a vaccine coming just a few months earlier than expected? Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. It's an interesting one because we often think about kind of overreactions in markets being on the downside, so markets falling a lot, but we also see it on the upside, so markets reacting really positively to news coming forward, perhaps more than what's warranted. And that's where you get an interesting position for clients where they see that good news come through. How can they make sure that they kind of benefit from that good news? And often, one way we can try and do that through this automatic action is by using triggers. So the case that when you have good news come through, you will make a change to your investment strategy to lock in those gains. You move to a more resilient portfolio and you actually have a smoother journey going forwards to meet your long-term objective. And that's the key, isn't it? Knowing really clearly your long-term objective that sort of drives that. And obviously we are talking sort of DB pension funds here, which makes it slightly easier, I guess, to put a really clear number on what that long-term objective is. But broadly, I think you could generalize that to other types of investors as well. If you have real clarity on what your objective is, pounds and pence or whatever, then you can take money off the table, if you like, when you get close to winning the game, if you like, you can take the money off the table. But if you don't know what winning the game looks like, then you're always just going to be going around the same kind of um, journey. As we get towards wrapping up then, as a regular listener of the podcast, I think you'll perhaps know what's coming. Give listeners one thing you'd like them to take away from what we've talked about today. So if I had to pick one thing, I would probably 
go back to the points I made earlier around, I think there's real value in having an agreed automatic process you can rely on to react quickly when you get opportunities in markets, be that rebalancing, be that triggers, or be that something else entirely different. That's really valuable and it helps avoid those behavioral biases. I had a feeling you might say that, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a good, strong takeaway. I think it's come across really clearly in today's episode. Jacob, the other question we always ask our guests is what you think the most underappreciated thing is about investing. Or you can alternatively answer the question, what's the most underappreciated thing about 2020? I'll give you either. My most underappreciated thing about 2020 is probably actually how little action actually needed to be taken by our clients or investors more generally throughout this year. The market drop and then rebound was very, very quick. And markets came up to a level actually where we are today, they'll reach new highs. So for many of our clients, they're actually the position they're in doesn't look too different to the position they're in a year ago. So Jacob, final question then, any recommendations to leave our listeners with in terms of books, podcasts, all that sort of thing? Well, as we're in the run up to Christmas, I thought I'd give a recommendation for what I think is a really good book. And so you can give it as a gift to friends or family. It's This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. Ah, yes. Yeah, Adam Kay was a junior doctor in the NHS. As a junior doctor, he had to keep notes that were kind of a reflection on cases that he worked on during the day. And he compiled those together into a book. And actually, it turns out that what he wrote is really, really hilarious. But also some really, really kind of profound stories and messages in there as well. So it's a book that I found had me really, really gripped. I found it really, really funny. But there were also some serious notes in there, which were good thought-provoking moments as well. Yeah, it really gave me a newfound respect. I mean, there was already respect there, but a real respect for what junior doctors do. I'd second that as well. And that was my real takeaway out of it as well. And like you say, some really, really poignant moments, lots of sort of really bittersweet kind of twist to it. So definitely one we can all endorse by the sound of it. Yeah, I think, Dan, that's the first time ever that there's been a recommendation we've both also read or listened to. So well done, Jacob, for bringing us together. (laughs) It's unanimous. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Bye. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.